Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. It's great to see you. Peace be with you. Today is our half anniversary, six month anniversary. We did it. We made it. When you're, you know, dating or newly married, you count all the like weeks and then you count every month. And then there's a certain point where you just count years, you know, it's the same with parenting. Uh, parents are like, my, my kid is so many months old. Um, we talk, like, there's got to be a point where you transition from months to years as a parent. We've had people say, like, my kid's 41 months old. Like, that's way too much mental math. We just need to cut it off at two years. And then also, if you're at a third kid or above, uh, you're allowed not to really know. Like, he's two, he's three. I don't know. I don't dabble in all those details at this point. We're trying not to overparent him, you know. He's a kid. We don't know. Well, we're six months in, and I'm reminded of uh, my favorite line in any movie. Uh, it comes from a movie called Bottle Rocket, uh, Wes Anderson's first film. And uh, in, in Bottle Rocket, these guys pull off, uh, well, they don't pull it off, but it's the most unsuccessful, like, bank robbery of all time. They all get caught. Uh, one guy gets stuck in, a, like, one of those walk-in refrigerators and can't get, get out. The next guy's, like, stuck on the second floor of the building. And so the main character ends up getting arrested and going to jail. And at the end of the movie, he's sitting on these metal bleachers in the jail yard, and his friends come to visit him and bring him a hamburger. And he leans back and takes a bite of the hamburger and says, we really did it, didn't we? <laughs> you're like, no, you're in prison. You got arrested. It totally <laughs> failed. And there's times, honestly, where church planning, which is, which is fairly difficult, it just takes a lot of energy. I mean, every Sunday we, we come in here, we, we set up all this stuff. We've got to recruit people to set up. We've got to recruit for children's ministry. And we've got people down there uh, watching over our kids and teaching them. We come in here and we've got coffee set up and we're doing all this activity, just hoping most of our regular people come and then praying that a few visitors might come as well. But then I show up and I've brought the wrong bulletins, which was last week. And I forgot the communion bread, which was last week. And then my... My microphone gives out, which was last week, and then homie's like all in my personal space with the batteries. And then I get home, finally unwind, and I eat my hamburger with my boys and think, we really did it, didn't we? It's masterful work that we did. Well, church planning is like all hard things, parenting, starting a business, where it takes an incredible amount of, of energy on the front end. It's incredibly demanding, it's exhausting, but it's also incredibly rewarding. And, it, and it, serves, uh, it serves a great number of people, over, especially over the long haul. And then we get down the road and we realize something exists, something beautiful, something that God has, has given us that didn't previously exist. And so we always have to keep looking forward, like parenting or like starting a business, and see what God has for us in the future. And to be reminded of, of that on a regular basis. But in, as we do that, we also need to be able to sort of laugh at ourselves, admit our weaknesses, our mistakes, uh, not take our to ourselves too seriously because when you're in the middle of something that's really demanding uh, it's hard to kind of see above it or, or to, to step back for a moment uh, and to look at it and see man this is so good this is so life-giving and that's that's the challenge of being in the middle of a difficult season is is to be able to to look and, and still praise praise God and, and to see all the good things not just not just hard things or things you might might change and maybe it's more me uh, than other people but but church planning is hard for its leaders, not just for the pastors, but for the volunteers, uh, for you core members that are, are involved in setup and children's ministry and hospitality and community group leadership. 
But what's, what's unique about church planning is that it's actually all that challenge on the front end is, is so, so good for the church in the long run. I've heard it said over and over, and now I completely believe it, that the first two or three years of a new church, it's not just setting the foundation for the church itself, but it's, it's doing a work in the leaders and a work in the members so that as the church grows later on and as it's down the road, the people that were here from the beginning are, are more humble, more persevering, more resilient, uh, more spiritually mature. And so the first few years are kind of breaking down the leaders and core members so that the Lord would build us back up. And I have so much, so much confidence that the Lord is in our midst right now. I can look back over the six months that we've been gathering here on Sundays and doing uh, weekly worship. I can look back over the year of, of preparation that led up to it and just see that the Lord has been with us every step of the way. I just feel so encouraged and so overjoyed and so grateful to be a part of what God's doing here. And so I thought I'd just share a couple of things that I'm super encouraged by. And the, the number one thing that always comes to mind is just your, your own hearts. Uh, getting to see you all grow, getting to see you serve, getting to see you uh, give up your preferences for somebody else or go out of your way to, to serve and to bless somebody else, to get to see you uh, in community group growing and, and thriving. I feel like our community group, I hardly even talk anymore. My main job is just to get people from the kitchen to the living room, uh, and then from there, it's all just they can handle everything else. They Great questions, great conversation, encouraging words. Like We have to actually get started at some point, but then once that happens, everybody's good to go. And I'm so thankful for the number of of servant leaders that we have here. Probably two-thirds of, of our regular group is, is involved in at least monthly service, which is definitely not true of, of larger and more established churches. Uh, so I'm so grateful for the way people serve week in and week out. Uh, and I'll use that opportunity to also say we need more servants uh, set up, <laughs> children's ministry, hospitality, music. Uh, there are a number of ways you can get involved and, and use your spiritual gifts and that'll help some people not serve two, three, four times a month. Uh, the third thing that came to mind is uh, pretty exciting for me. It's probably not something you think about a lot, but over the last four months, we've been more than 50% self-sustaining financially as a church. And so what that means is when you start a new church, a lot of your funding to provide the needs of the church comes from outside churches. Uh, we have a church network that supports us financially, but over time, it's the internal giving of the church that begins to provide for the needs. And so we are now uh, past the sort of tipping point. We're past halfway to where the, the needs of the church are being provided by the people that are here, not people that are far away. And so for four months now, that's, that's been the case. After a month or two, I was like, I don't want to announce it yet. It might go back. It might be too soon. But after four months, it's like, hey, that's great. That's a great sign of growth in our midst. And then lastly, I think our, our potential for uh, being a healthy, growing, thriving church is, is incredibly high. There are churches that, that start off really, really uh, large from day one, um, but they don't necessarily have as, as much health. And there are churches that start off intentionally slower and a little bit more deeply rooted so that they can flourish later on. And that's, that's the path uh, that we have chosen. And one of our core commitments <coughs> as a church is we are not in a hurry. And so we'll say over and over again, yes, we want to grow, but we want to grow in the right way. And we're not in a hurry. We're not rushing what God would do amongst us relationally and, and organically. One of the questions that I've, I've gotten the most 
being back in Colombia after being away for a while, when I'm telling people about the church, people almost always want to know how big do you want Trinity to be? And for most of the time, I just like had no idea what to say. Uh, and I'll say, well, I'm more concerned with people growing and, and the church growing through relationships and growing in the right way. But Casey and I took some time and actually talked through this. Like, we need to make sure we're on the same page as pastors. Uh, and then for our leaders, that we're on the same page. Because uh, if somebody's like 60 people and then somebody else is like 6,000 people, it's like, okay, those are two very different sized churches. Um, but when we look out maybe 10 years down the line, what we are sort of prayerfully uh, expecting, which is you would do as a family, say we, we think we want to have this many children and we hold it with open hands. We said we would love to see the Lord uh, put us at a size from like 300 to 800, uh, which when we sit here in our midst like this, it's like hard to imagine. Uh, and yet at the same time, we're, we're confident that what the Lord has done to lay a foundation here uh, will allow us to grow into a church that's, that's healthy, thriving, self-sustaining, but also not like the biggest church anybody's ever heard of. Uh, I think there, there's often sort of a sweet spot in church life. Uh, I've had the privilege of serving on staffs of churches from, well, I guess counting this, uh, like zero, all the way up to, to 5,000. And, and there's something that's, that's so encouraging about being a little bit larger than we are now because we're able to provide more resources for each other. And yet there's a point which I think happens around maybe 800,000 people where the church becomes so large you can't know many people. Uh, you can't know uh, most people directly. Uh, and then for the pastors, we can no longer do direct pastoral care at a certain point. So the church that I was at in Louisville was so large that we always had layers of leadership. And there's nothing wrong with that. That has to happen. But if there are so many layers of leadership where, where we as pastors don't get to meet directly with the members, that's just not really what we went into ministry to do. And so we are prayerfully seeking that the Lord would, would grow us, uh, would grow us spiritually, would grow us relationally, would grow us in diversity. That's one of our big themes for the year, praying that the Lord would grow us into a more diverse church. But all of this is, is within the commitment that we're not in a hurry. We don't want to rush growth. We don't want to try to manufacture growth. We're not going to advertise our way to a bigger congregation. But we feel like what the Lord is doing here and wants to do here over the years is, is so important and is so needed in the city that we want people to know about it. We, we want them to experience. We want them to experience Christ and the community that he is, he is building, not just here but all over the city. Uh, so let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into the sermon. It'll be a little bit shorter because I wanted to uh, just share a little bit of that. Let's pray. Father, I'm just so thankful for your presence with us. I'm so thankful for your goodness toward us, the joy and the peace and the freedom that's found in your son and in your church. I'm so thankful that we don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to get it all right. It's not just about what we, what we do, but it's about who we are, who you've made us to be, and what we believe. And so, Father, would you guide us as a church? Would you grow us as a church? Would you protect us as your people? Would you enable us to reach people that don't know you and to get them connected here and in other places around the city? So, Father, we just love you so much. We pray for your blessing and your presence in a, in a rich and meaningful way in our gathering now. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. 
All right, so we are in this series in Matthew, looking at Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God in the middle part of the book. And we've said that Jesus' teachings are all so subversive. Jesus' kingdom confronts and subverts the kingdom of the world. And we saw last week with marriage and singleness and family, how Jesus sort of flips the ways of the world upside down, but does so in a way that's so life-giving, that, that builds us up, that sets us free. And in the same way today, what we see when Jesus teaches on money is that same subversiveness. Money is sort of the, the currency of the kingdom of the world. It's something that has sort of a dark side, dark forces that can control our hearts. And that's something that Christ can set us free from. And so today's message is about, about freedom. It's about finding, finding life, finding freedom in Christ in a way that we're no longer controlled in the ways that the world are by our money, by our possessions. And so the three things I want to look at are the posture, the practices, and the power in Jesus' teaching on money. So the posture is contentment. The two practices we'll look at, there's a number of practices we could, but we'll look at simplicity and generosity. And then I want to close with the, the power of the gospel that we can see in and through money. So look at verse uh, 16 again, the posture of contentment. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Verse 21, after some conversation, Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This question is, the question is phrased interestingly. I never really thought about it this, this deeply until this week. But look at that. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Clearly this guy is a hardworking guy. He's probably a successful guy. He's often called the rich young ruler. He's got his life all figured out and, and put together. He's got wealth. He probably has status in the community. And so, of course, it's in front of a group of people, which is why it gets sort of included in our scriptures, that Jesus comes up and says, good teacher, what, what is the one thing I must do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus first gives a few things from the Old Testament law. And the man says, look, I've, I've done all those things. Even since I was a kid, I've done all those things. So humility, not a high mark at this point for the guy. And then Jesus goes right to his heart and says, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then follow me. There's a misconception within Christianity that it's just what we do and the laws that we follow in our, in our rote obedience that's at the core of our faith. And that yet here we have a man who is already doing all those things and still is not fully accepted by Jesus. There's still something in the way, something that's, that's blocking him from the freedom that he could find in Christ. Now, Jesus doesn't universally ask people to give away all their money or, or to take a vow of poverty. But for this man, he could see directly into this man's heart, into his soul, and he knew what would prevent this man from following Jesus. And so Jesus says, give it all the way and follow me. He wants to set this man free, and yet the man, it says he's sad. He went away sad. Well, why would he go away sad? When he made the choice, he made the free choice. He had the choice of Jesus or money. Nobody coerced him. He chose money, but then why would he go away sad? I think it can only be that he, in choosing money, knew it would never fully satisfy him. 
in front of this crowd. He, he was willing to admit that he would choose money over Jesus. But he also seems to know in, in the bottom of his heart that that will never satisfy him. It's often the people that have money that have, have achieved what they were always looking forward to to realize the emptiness that, that comes when they're finally there. And I say the posture that Jesus is trying to get at is, is contentment. And contentment is this, this beautiful virtue that the church used to teach regularly. And I think in our, in our modern day, we've, we've often lost it. But the Greek word content, it's, it's a combination of two words. It's the word full and the word soul. And so you put these two words together and you get content, which means a full soul. It's a soul that's not filled in, in itself, but it's filled from the outside. It's a soul that has no further need. It, it has all that it needs. And the reason a soul can be full is not because it has so much and it continually gets more and more. It's because it needs less and less. Contentment is, is being content, being full with Christ and not much else. There are two news stories this week that I thought uh, illustrate this really well. You probably saw both of them. First of all, uh, front page of New York Times, I think on Tuesday, uh, there's a big uh, college scandal that was just revealed. An investigation revealed at least 50 cases where families have purchased admission for their kids. And it's usually in these Ivy League schools, elite private colleges. And so these are kids that did not get into the school of their choice, but then parents being anxious for their kids' future have illegally purchased admission to these colleges. And so you've got kids who are, they've got tuition. I mean, tuition is crazy at these universities. Parents are going above and beyond that, paying fifty dollars or $100,000 just to purchase admission in a way that somebody who actually earned that seat is going to be left out now. The most hilarious and terrifying example was a young girl who did not play high school soccer had purchased for her a soccer scholarship to Yale for the cool price of $1.2 million. Isn't that insane? I mean, that is literally insane. It's, it's detached from reality that we would spend so much money to try to secure our kids' future and to secure our, our name in the minds of others that we would rather spend that kind of money and, and create a false scholarship for a kid than to have somebody who, who has actually earned that seat receive it. And so that's the first story. And then the second story is a local uh, some of you have followed the University of Missouri professor, uh, biology professor George Smith. So he won the, the Nobel Prize in chemistry just a few months ago. Uh, Dr. Smith was actually my senior capstone advisor, so I've been kind of following this closely and super excited for him. He's like the sweetest man ever. I think he's in his 80s now and he still bikes to campus and teaches one class. Um, but this past week, he gave a speech at the university uh, and he said that he was donating his entire Nobel Prize money, which is $250,000, to set up a scholarship fund for students. And his reasoning was that he felt like he, he didn't really deserve the Nobel Prize. He said there were hundreds of scientists around the country that were all working on this one technique, and he was sort of picked as a representative for all of it. They all worked together, they all contributed, they all shared information. So he felt like to spend that money all on himself or his family, it wasn't the right thing to do. He wanted to give it back to the community and sort of pay it forward to the future of these young scientists. And you look at these two stories sort of side by side in, in higher education, and, and it's this remarkable humility. I don't know if Dr. Smith is 
a Christian or if he's just old enough that he's incredibly wise and, and content at this stage in life. But it's so powerful that somebody who has probably not made a lot, a lot of money over their career could finally get this big paycheck and then let it just move right through his hands to somebody else. It's a demonstration of a, of a soul that's, that's not anxious, not, not grasping for more. And, and we can see what happens when, when we lack contentment in the first story. The posture of contentment is what the rich young ruler lacks. It's the one thing that he lacks. Money is at the core of his identity. And when money's at the core of your identity, it leads you to do horrible things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. An author, Richard Foster, has said, Without Christ, we have no unity or focus around which our lives are oriented. Because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us to an insane attachment to things. When we're not centered in something better, when we're not rooted in Christ, money and possessions can pull us away in so many different ways. So the one thing that we truly need is, is this posture. A posture of contentment. That's, that's real and true freedom. If you have contentment, you need nothing else. And so, how do we get this contentment? I think the practices uh, are important here. It's important to remember that as, as human beings, we, we often think that we can feel our way into doing something. So if I feel strongly enough, then I'll do something. But often it's that we do something into feeling. And so falling in love is this incredible feeling. But love is actually supported by a set of practices and, and rhythms over a, a committed life together. And that's what enables your, your love and your feelings to flourish. It's the same way often we don't feel like going to the gym or working out, but if we actually go and do it, then later we feel like we were glad we were there. Often it just takes trusting the, the practices or trusting the things we know will, will cultivate the feelings in us later. And I think that's the case when it comes to money and possessions. And so the two practices, there, there could be a lot, prayer, um, reading God's word, being in community, but I think the two practices related to money and possessions that are most helpful for contentment are simplicity and generosity. So verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Then verse 26, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so simplicity... Simplicity is an intentionally reduced life, uh, a simple life. I think that's something that's actually fairly popular right now, a simple uh, decorating, simple uh, closet space. You know, everybody's de decluttering. And there's a recognition that a, a simple life enables you to, to sort of flourish and, and thrive and, and enjoy what you actually do have. And it's a very deeply spiritual principle in itself because when we, when we make space in our souls, our, our, our souls are meant to have some space to breathe. We, we're not meant to be stretched all the way to the margins in, in every way, our relationships, our finances, spiritually. We're meant to have some space around us. And so true contentment is, is really the, the source of simplicity. And yet simplicity also is one of the things that can make us more content. Does that make sense? So it sort of works in both ways. If you want contentment, you get there through simplicity, and that's just the way our, our souls work. 
And, and what simplicity requires, especially in our, in our culture, is this subversive rejection of, of constant accumulation. I think that's really the, the other uh, option than contentment. It's always accumulating, always needing a little bit more. You remember uh, the quote from John Rockefeller, one of the first billionaires ever? A reporter asked him, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. I think that's the default stage of our hearts apart from Christ. I need a little bit more, a little bit more. Psalm 16, one of my favorite psalms. King David has, has been king, and yet he is, he is removed from his kingdom. His son is literally trying to kill him so that he can become king. And he's hiding, running for, for his life. He ends up in a cave, and he writes this psalm. And he says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. So David looks around him. He's used to having everything. He's used to being one of the wealthiest kings in the whole world. And now he's hiding alone in a cave. And he says, I still have everything I need. Lord, you are my portion. You are what matters most. If I have you, that's, that's my inheritance. That's my lot in life. And if I have you, I need nothing else. And compare this with Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evil. And so it's not just money in itself that's the problem, or even having money. He says, those who want to get rich, those who, who love money, those are all heart words. And to choose to live on less than you can in, in a culture as, as consumeristic as ours, it requires having something better in your mind. Nobody chooses to live on less. Nobody chooses a, a lowered and, and a reduced lifestyle unless they're actually longing for something better, unless their heart is tied up in something better. And that's exactly what Jesus is going for when he's, when he's going for the heart of this young man. And so simplicity is the first practice. Generosity is the second one. Contentment, having a full soul, having a simple life, this creates space for generosity. And generosity is not just a, a, a money thing. Generosity is a, is a posture of life. It's having space in our lives for other people. It's having a heart that's, that's other-centered and, and who wants to give, give time, give resources, give possessions, give money. It's a heart that wants to set others free by the freedom that they have within themselves. And so generosity is, is refusing to say, I'm going to spend 100% of what I make on myself, which in our culture is, is very subversive. Everything in our culture says, spend at least 100% of what you make on yourself. And with credit cards and loans being what they are, we could spend like 180% of what we make on ourselves. But the pattern of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is this pattern of simplicity and of generosity. We were never meant to live on a on hundred percent of what we have. Now there are there are seasons where you're going to live on more than others. There are seasons where you're not going to be able to give very much to others or to the church. Seasons where you you can't give to the poor because you're you're feeling poor yourself. And yet there are other seasons where where we do have more than we need. And there's a great quote from Tim Keller where he says, "You have things in your closet." that don't belong to you. You have money in your pocket that doesn't belong to you. Christ doesn't bless us with everything he blesses us with just for us, but so that we might bless 
others through them. And generosity, at its core, it reminds us that this world isn't our home. It makes sense. If this world was our final home, if this world was the truest thing about reality, then money would really make sense as the center of our lives because it represents so much, because it's the currency of everything else. Money would make sense, except this world is not final. This world is not our home. And so if this world isn't our home, then generosity is far wiser than the accumulation of money. Jesus says, uh, verse 28 and 29, At the renewal of all things, or at the end of the age, everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. No one who, who leaves behind money and possessions in the pursuit of Christ and contentment will regret it. When we were in Matthew 6 earlier in the book, remember we had Julie with the string and the knot? So we had a little knot on a rope, and then Julie walked to the back of the room, and the knot represented our life in this world. Just a tiny little dot you could barely see from the back. But the string represents all of eternity. And if we choose to live for, for the little knot instead of the, the long string of, of all eternity, nobody, nobody would look at that and see that as wise. But you look at eternity and say, I want to live for eternity, not for now. Now, there's a few things that I, I usually recommend in terms of generosity, some, some next steps, especially if you're, if you're new to the faith or if you're uh, just beginning to work. Uh, one of the things I love, it's, it's never easy for me to teach on money or to teach on giving. It's one of my least favorite things to teach on, uh, even though Jesus teaches on it as much or more than anything else. Um, but I don't mind teaching on it here because people are either really, really generous or they just don't have any money. We have enough students and young people, and there's no expectation for you to give whatsoever. So it just makes it a lot easier. If you are in that position, though, what I would love to do for you over the months and years that you're here is help you to be generous when you are at a stage later in life, in your 30s and 40s and beyond, where you actually can be generous. So some of the next steps. Number one, uh, begin giving. Uh, whatever you make, if you make something, begin giving something. Uh, we actually do have college students that give $20 a month really consistently every month, which is awesome. I love that. It's super cool. Um, even when you don't feel like it, begin giving. Uh, I think sometimes just starting to give the first time is the hardest thing. If you work full time, you can begin by giving uh, or setting aside $100 a month or something that's a little bit stretching but still attainable. Uh, I think the pattern of, of the New Testament is given primarily to the church, but there are so many other really important things to give to. Giving directly to, to the poor, giving directly to marginalized people in, in your life, uh, creating space in your, in your life and in your budget to be able to do that. But just begin somewhere. Begin as, as small and as tangible as you can. Second, I think tithing monthly is a, is a good goal and a good pattern that the scripture lays out. Jesus doesn't talk a lot about tithing. It's, it's not a, a commandment in, in my view. Um, and yet at the same time, it, it seems to be a pattern in the scriptures. And so that's been one of the guiding principles for us as a family is to try to tithe uh, monthly to our church and then to be as generous as we can above and beyond that with other needs uh, that present themselves. Uh, one of my friends in town here is a Christian financial coach. Uh, and so if you have any questions about how to set a budget, how to do some of the really practical things. Uh, I'm probably not your guy for that. I can create my own budget, um, but I would point you to somebody who's much more of, a, of an expert on finances, uh, and we can help set you up with that if you're interested. Uh, 
And so begin giving, tithe monthly. And then number three, give generously as you're able. Uh, when you feel the freedom that, that we have in Christ, when we see all that he's done for us, it, it frees us up to be generous in a way that nothing else can. And, and tithing is not necessarily meant to be uh, like the high end of giving. So I, I've had the pleasure of knowing a lot of people who give an incredible amount of their money away. And they say they get far more joy out of doing that than they would actually get just spending the money on themselves. And so I would also recommend uh, two nonprofits in town, City of Refuge and then Coyote Hill Children's Home. Uh, those are two organizations that we support as a church. Um, but those are great places to put your money as you look towards uh, being generous in our city. And so the posture is contentment. The practices are, are simplicity and generosity. Uh, and what that shows us, what that cultivates in us, is power. The power of the gospel. Not our power, but the power of God dwelling deep within us. And so 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he made himself poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. The most generous act in, in the history of the world has, has already been done. When, when Christ went to the cross, when the Father sent his only Son into the world, Christ who has everything, who is supreme over all, intentionally was made nothing, emptied himself, even died on the cross for us. And he did all of this to set us free. So we no longer have to be enslaved to the ways of the world, to money and, and possessions. And as Paul says, so that we might become rich, that we might become eternally rich, rich in the ways that matter most. And as I said before, if we truly see what Jesus has done for us, if we truly see how much God loves us and has demonstrated that through his son, it has a way of sort of opening our, our hands. It has a way of letting money come to us and then through us for the best possible thing. So true financial freedom. It's not having everything. It's not always having more. It's to be able to say, I have all that I need. I have a full soul in Christ.